If you could take out the handout sheet that was given to you at the front door, I'm going to draw your attention to the fill in the blank in just a moment. We are in part six of our series through the book of Hebrews entitled Our Faithful High Priest, and I entitled this morning's message, Ever Increasing Glory. Now, I want to begin with uh, a concept that will lead to that fill in the blank. It is this. For the philosophy of Bridgeway, which states that the church is for the believer, for that to be healthy and operating properly, it demands that you are putting into play and utilizing everything you are receiving here out there. What we cannot do, and our whole system breaks down, is if we sit around together, learn information, and keep it to ourselves, and not allow it to turn into transformation. That would actually destroy the entire philosophy. We are based on the concept that you're always on 24-7, You come in here, and even in here you're on, but it is a time where you are built up, challenged, motivated, taught, whatever those things may be. You may be serving here, however it works, but we're aiding in the transformation and the progress of your spiritual growth. But the minute you re-engage with your world, you're on to distribute what you just learned. If you are not doing that, then this doesn't work. We cannot merely become more knowledgeable for no reason. We have to take this and implement it. Now, I need us to understand why we're here. The very definition of the meaning of life, of why we exist, why God built us. I believe that the Bible clearly shows that Our purpose for existing is to bring about more worship to him from whatever sphere of influence we're in. For example, the simple question should always be, in your workplace, is worship rising up from your your workplace more because you are there? In your school, is more worship rising up out of that corner of the world than if you weren't there? For Jesus Christ has sprinkled us as salt and light throughout the world. It's the reason for missions. It is the reason for outreach. It is the reason for worship in here. It's the very reason for being. We should be distributing and being an influence into the world. Can we all agree on that? All right, then here's the problem. Many of us are not doing that or certainly not doing that boldly and confidently because we are still babies after all these years we still do not know how to rightly handle the word of god we do not have our heads wrapped around core concepts of the christian faith we are not able to freely get into a conversation with someone that would start like hey i don't know anything about this christian thing so what's that all about We wouldn't know what to say next, or we're not willing to. Uh, Maybe a question would be, I don't know God, so you say you know God, so what's he like? Is there anything that we feel confident about sharing next about the nature of God? What we must do is analyze at all times, am I growing? So when we look at this, 
We say, have you grown? Are you a different person? Have you progressed in your faith? And it doesn't just mean knowledge. It means implementation. Are you different now than you were last year at this time? You said, well, hey, Lance, give me some time. I gave you one year. Are you any different? Are you any different this weekend than you were last weekend? Are you engaging with people different? Are you treating people different? Are you thinking different thoughts? Are you praying different? Are you worshiping different? What is transforming in you? The fill in the blank in front of you is this. We are called to mature our faith. We are called to mature our faith. So we're going to dive right into it and talk about that very same concept through the author of Hebrews. If you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5 verse 11, page 1003 and the Bible's under the chair in front of you if you need one of those to join with us this morning. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 11. Now if you didn't read ahead, bore you in for a world of surprise. Uh, I'm assuming that many of you heard my bit of warning. Uh, which is basically, we are about to walk into, historically, one of the most controversial passages in the entire Bible. It is this passage that kept the book of Hebrews out of the Bible for hundreds of years. It is this passage that was used by the church to bar people from ever returning back into the church during a very difficult time of persecution. This passage has split churches, separates denominations, and causes debate and argument amongst Christians on a continual basis. It's a big deal. What's the big deal about it? It all hinges around three verses. Uh, give or take. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4, 5, and 6. And ultimately what they say, if you are not familiar with them at all, is they say a phrase, it is impossible for someone that fits a certain criteria that some would call believers, it is impossible if they fall away to ever be brought back to the Lord again. Now, what that does is it brings up a bigger issue, which is, can you lose your salvation or are we eternally secure? That debate that rages throughout the church primarily gets launched from this passage. So that's why it's a big deal. So here's what we're going to have to do. We are going to go through, first of all, read the passage for totality and context. And remember, we believe that it's a Jew speaking to Jewish people that are likely tempted to go back to Orthodox Judaism because there's heavy persecution and they could take off some heat if they bail out of the Christian side of things and go back to what they know, the law. We're going to read for context. We're going to go through the passage all the way up through the scary part. And right there we will pause and we will assess what does that passage mean. This is a series through the book of Hebrews. This is not merely a theological examination series. So that means our first task is to figure out what's going on in Hebrews. What is the author trying to say? Once we get that somewhat locked down, we can now go on to implications and applications of that passage by talking about the bigger issue. We will hash that out, and then most rapidly, we will read through the rest of the passage like as if we were running from a tiger. Okay, 
because what I've found in each time I have taught this already twice, we're going through it so fast it doesn't even give justice to it. So it's probably going to happen again today. Let's get started. Here we go. Now, uh, if you want to read along with me, once again, page 1003. Chapter 5, verse 11, and then we're going to be going through the entire chapter of 6. So it's a lot of material. See what God has for us. It says this About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding Him up to contempt." For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, that was easy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we submit ourselves to your molding hands like clay, and we ask, Lord, that you would help us sort out what you want us to know. Lord, each and every one of us is coming from a different perspective. We're coming with different bias in our minds and in our hearts. We're coming from different experiences of life. Some of us are feeling victorious, and some are feeling torn down. Some need encouragement, and some need to be shaken up. So, Lord, what we offer to you is free reign. 
This is your house. This is based on your will. So Holy Spirit, do as you wish among us and bring about your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's see what we have here. He starts out and he says, now about this, we have much to say. What does that mean? You'd have to remember last week. Last week, we were talking about Jesus Christ being our great high priest. We talked about how amazing that was and how he was like Melchizedek. And he starts going into this whole priesthood thing. And all of a sudden, he hits pause on his message. And he said, man, I got a ton to tell you about that. This would be a really exciting message, but I'm going to have to stop right here. Why? It is hard to explain. You say, it's hard to explain. Well, dude, maybe you need to go take a class. And he said, the problem's not me. It's you. Since you have become dull of hearing, that word means slow, forgetful, apathetic in their learning. He said, your refusal to learn has shut my message down. I can't even talk about that stuff. Because you keep going, I don't get it, I don't get it, I don't get it, I don't get it. If you keep saying that, I can't preach to you anymore because I'm trying to go off on all this stuff about the nature of God and you're just not going to grasp it. You have no foundation. We still need to lay that foundation after all these years. You can hear some frustration in his voice. For though by this time, verse 12 says, meaning they're not recent converts, they've been in the Lord for a time. For though by this time you ought to be teachers. Now, does that mean formal? No, it means that all Christians are teachers. We're called to share. We're called to give a reason for the hope that lies within. We are called to instruct and answer questions that people have. Everybody has that job. By this time, you ought to be teachers. You still need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. The oracles of God is you still need someone to teach you what God said, the core, the Old Testament in their case, the life of Jesus as it was lived out and distributed through the Gospels. He said, we have to go back to the core stuff again, the basics. He moves on with an analogy. He said, you need, and the word there need in Greek is you have become in need of, meaning a process has reduced them to needing it again. You have become in the need of, in some way they've slid back is the idea. You have become in need of milk, not solid food. All right, let's use the analogy. Let's not press it too far without vomiting. So here's the deal. What is milk? It's pre-digested food. Yeah? Someone else ate it. Now you get to eat it. That's the point of milk. That means that the cow was going, no, no, no. Eating something that was raw material, and then you get to eat what he ate, she ate. I got corrected on that last night. It was like, hold up. Cows are girls. All right, so. <laughs> I get it. I receive rebuke. That's fine. Pre-digested food, someone else has to engage with it 
break it down, then you're able to receive it. That's the point. Now, there is nothing wrong with milk for babies. You don't look at a baby and go, nice. Okay, the baby's like, dude, I'm a baby. That's why I drink milk. You're the one that gave it to me, right? It's entirely appropriate for a baby to drink milk. So if you're new to the Christian faith and you need to know the basics, that's not only appropriate, it's the only way it can go. But if you're an adult and your entire diet is based on milk, something's wrong with you. One of the most eye-opening phrases I heard as I was doing my message was, arrested development isn't normal. If you're not growing in your faith, something is critically wrong with you. Because if a child isn't growing, something's not right in their system. Of course they grow. Now, there's nothing wrong with still having milk in your diet, yeah? Yesterday morning, I had pancakes. I had milk with pancakes. There's nothing wrong with having it as a supplement. And of course, I believe that in my life, just because of the fact that I'm teaching all this stuff, I have to, every two years, kind of go back to the basics just to re-rack my head to remember what in the world I'm talking about and understand the gospel all over again. So there's nothing wrong with milk. There are times when it's entirely appropriate. But if that's all you have and you go, you know what? I don't need to be more convinced. I don't need all this theological la, 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 la stuff. I get it. All right. Jesus is a savior. That's cool. I got it. I want to do something else. Hold up. It's not about you. You study things in scripture and you read things that don't apply to you because someone you're going to talk to needs to know that. Not you. And not only that, it's really about God. Everything's about God. So you read his word, you engage with stuff that you don't think is applicable to you because it gives you a more well-rounded understanding of the Savior you love and your worship becomes more deep and more rich. So yes, it does matter with that theological la-la-la stuff. And we do need to know it. We do need to examine it. We do need to study it. We do not only live off Milk, it's not about getting a heaven ticket and cool, I'm in. This is about growing up. This is about becoming mature in the faith. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled, unable to rightly handle the word of righteousness, the gospel, the Bible, whatever you want to say, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. That word is kind of used of disciples that train up. And even if I was to disciple somebody through a 36-week series, when they graduate out of that, they would be mature in that sense. It doesn't mean they're better than the master. It just means they're growing up. It's not that we're better than Jesus when we mature. Not even close. It's that we're growing up into what he trained us to do. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil meaning you've lived it you owned it you put it into play saw what happened learned from it spun it back around did it again the idea that the bible says love your enemies well that only means so much in word until you have an enemy that you are now trying to engage with loving them seeing how difficult that is submitting it to the lord wrestling through it finally getting to a place where you can love that enemy, then you re-engage with the word and go, wow, 
that has so much more depth to me. One thing was pointed out as I was studying is that with children, you always have to tell them no. But as they grow up, they have discernment powers to be able to go, I don't, I know that's not right. Same with, you can tell if you're a young believer, if consistently you're always getting busted for something by other people. If they're always having to tell you, hey, what are you doing? That's wrong. Oh, I didn't even notice that. I didn't even see that. Okay, why? That discernment has not been honed yet. What's the point of that? Maturity is not only possible, it's necessary. Some of us buy into this bogus idea. You know what? I'm never going to fully arrive. What's the point? I already gave you the point. The point is that maturity is required. We don't just get to remain babies. That's not okay. We grow up. All right, chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. Let's leave the gospel as a foundation and start building on it. The whole 2,000 years ago, Jesus came, the Son of God, died for our sins, was buried, rose on the third day, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and is coming back to get us. Let's take that, build on it, and start going somewhere. And let's go on, be carried on is the phrase, meaning God ultimately causes the growth. Let's get out of his way, partner with him, and allow us to move forward in maturity. Let us be carried on to maturity, not laying again, and he lists out his core basics. Now, the list he's about to give is probably all the issues he's been talking with his crew about probably for years. He has to keep hashing out the same issues over and over again. So he's going, come on, you guys. We've been talking about this so much. Let's talk about something else. The irony is that we don't know what they all mean. Now, that's not because they're more mature than we are. It's because 2,000 years have separated us, and we're reading their private mail. So these are all inside phrases. So he's going, you know what I mean by that? And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we don't. So it leaves us a little bit of learning to do. So here's his list of basics. He said, let us go on to maturity, not laying again, number one, a foundation of repentance from dead works. Now that one we could pretty much start to get our minds around. Repentance means turning away from sin, something that is not beneficial. But of course, if you turn away from something, you need to turn toward something else. So what are they turning away from? Dead works. What are dead works? Things that you would do that do not ultimately result in the glorification of God or in actual salvation or an advancement of your faith. It is likely in this context, it's referring to turning away from the law, the Jewish concept in orthodoxy, waiting for a Messiah still, to a place of knowing the Messiah is here, and receiving grace, going from legalism to grace. Make sense? That's number one. But if you turn away, you've got to turn towards, that's the next one, and of faith toward God. You turn away from legalism, you turn towards faith in God and engage that way. And let's leave, number three, the instruction about washings. All right, this is where we run to our first hiccup. The word is baptismos, plural. The baptisms. 
Now, what, what do they mean? What do you mean the washings? What, what does that have to do with anything? Well, they all knew, but we don't know. So let's guess. Uh, a couple different things. If we're talking about straight up Jewish context, it's possible it's referring to the Levitical washings, the ceremonial cleansings that the Jews would do. He said, listen, we've already talked about that. What are they appropriate for? What are they not appropriate for? How does that fit into the new covenant? Let's move on. Or does it mean the various baptisms mentioned in scripture? For example, there's the baptism of John, the baptism of repentance, turning from your sin. There's a baptism of Christ that is referred to, which is having Christ come into your life and washing your heart. There's the baptism of the Holy Spirit that is referred to that empowerment of the believer. Is that what he's talking about? Or is he talking about the trifold dunk that they did in the early days? What is that? Well, we don't do this here, but after I've studied it, I really want to. What they did early on Um, And in AD 100, one of the first church guides was produced by the church called the Didache. And in there, it would explain how to do baptisms. They did baptism by immersion, going all the way under the water, but they did it three times for everybody. So you would go in the name of the Father, dunk, Son, dunk, Holy Spirit, dunk, right? Is that what he's referring to? Baptisms. Well, we don't know. But the bottom line is simply this. He's saying, listen... We have all those core basics down, right? We get it. The whole water stuff. Can we move on from the water stuff? We already handled that. He said, let us also move on from the laying on of hands. Shoot, now we're here again. What do you mean the laying on of hands? Well, that was used for a ton of stuff. The first one, and the one that is probably coolest in my opinion is that when someone would become a new convert into the church, the rest of the church would gather around them and lay hands on them and pray for them and welcome them into the community. Is that what it means? Or is it the idea of laying hands on for the purpose of praying for healing? Is it laying the hands on for the purpose of initiating them into an office, a pastor, a missionary? Is it for... What? Is it for the laying on of hands for all these different reasons? I wrote them all down. Here we go. Welcome to the Christian community, blessing, remember how the dad lays his hands on his sons, blesses them, set apart for special office, healing, receiving the Holy Spirit, or are we going back to the Jewish concept of laying their hands on a sacrificial animal and the transference of guilt and that animal being slain? As you can see, laying out of hands was used for many, many things. He said, whatever those are, we've already talked about those. Let's move on. He said, you know about the resurrection of the dead, yeah? Let's make it simple. Jesus died, rose again. If you're one of his, you're raising again too. Can we all move on? And let's move on from eternal judgment. Everybody get that there's an eternal judgment? Now, maybe you don't understand that there are actually two different judgments. The the judgment for the non-believer is different than the judgment for the believer. The believer's judgment is not based on sins. Because Jesus Christ died for that. And his record cleanses your record. So you're not going to, we've all been raised maybe with this idea that you have your whole life played out before you and it's embarrassing and you're humiliated and stuff like that. And usually you're naked. Have you noticed that? I don't know why that is, but anyway. Okay, that's, that's bogus. Jesus Christ already died for that. The believer's judgment is much more of one of the father saying, come here kids, come on over here. All right, now we're going to assess 
What'd you do? I gave you a bunch of stuff and I asked you to work with this. What'd you do with it? And then it's varying rewards. That's actually the believer's judgment. The non-believer's judgment is one of condemnation because it's examining their works, their sins, because no one has cleansed those off. So the judgment there is you now have all this on your record. The penalty for that is eternal death. That's the difference in the judgments. He said, all right, we got that stuff. Let's move on. And he said, and we will do this if God permits. In other words, if God gets you moving in maturity, we can talk about stuff. Awesome. But then he drops this bomb. And this is where it gets all scary and shaky. For it is impossible. Whatever he's about to say, it's impossible. It is impossible in the case of those. Whoops, something just shifted there. You just saw a pronoun shift. Prior to this point, he used the phrase, we, us, kind of this, hey, all of us together. Now he just went to what? Those. Meaning this crew is not in that category. It appears that they're in danger of this category. That's why he's telling them. But they're not in this category. He is now using the phrase, those. He's going to give an example. It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened. What does that word mean? Enlightened seems to be the light turned on when Jesus Christ came into their lives, the light of the world. A new reality came into play. It became synonymous with baptism into the early church because that was the time when your new life launched. Those who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, personally experienced the heavenly gift whatever the heavenly gift is does that mean the blessings of god does that mean the gift of salvation and it's pretty intense phrase next one and who have shared in the holy spirit that word means partners with companions of it's already been used in this book to talk about companions of the messianic king you're part of the team who have shared in the Holy Spirit, engaged with the Holy Spirit to a significant degree, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, both in the person of Jesus and in the writings, and tasted of the powers of the age to come. That word powers is normally attached with miracles. And what it's saying is, you know how all the Jews would get excited about this future time when the Messiah would return and the world would change. The deserts would bring forth water and they would become bountiful and a blessing, not a curse. People would live longer and their crops would flourish and Israel would become the very center of activity. That time of blessing of the Messianic age, they believed that would be miraculous. And he said, but these folks have already engaged with that now. That the power of the Messiah is already operating in the church. So they've witnessed miracles and seen the very power of God manifest. It is impossible for that crew, whoever they are, if they have fallen away. Ah, everything hinges on that phrase right there. Because the way that it's written in Greek, it can mean if they fall away because they fall away, and about a million other opportunities. What is fall away? Well, that's intriguing. 
The context seems to suggest apostasy. Apostasy is leaving the faith, abandoning ship in a determined, consistent, stalwart way. A rebellion, a shoving away, determinedly walking away from. That's what the context seems to suggest from the Christian faith. What's the problem? The author doesn't use the word apostasy. He does in other areas, but not here. Why? We don't know. He uses a different word. The other Greek word he used is to fall to the side. Well, what does that mean? Well, we don't know. It can mean wander. It can mean fall over. And literally, one commentator said, it's the same word that if a guy is running a race and just goes, ah, and falls over to the side, there he is. That's the word. You're like, well, does that mean he's disqualified or does he get to get up and go run again? I mean, ah, now you're seeing why there's so much open area for interpretation. It is impossible for this crew, whoever they are, if they fall to the side, whatever that means, to restore them again to repentance. That's the severity. Does it mean to restore them back to the faith? Or to get them to the place where they'll repent again. Does it matter? Why is it so severe? He says, since or because they are symbolically crucifying. That word is active continually, presently, crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm. And currently, continually, personally holding him up publicly to contempt and shame. Now, that's an extreme phrase. What he's saying is, symbolically, what they're doing is standing with those that crucified Christ and saying, yeah, leave him on the cross, let him die. He's not the Savior. Well, it does seem rather significant. He's not saying that they're saying that. He's saying that their attitude and behaviors reveal that. All right? Then he gives an analogy to clear it all up. Ready? Here we go. The land, for land, and usually in a parable, land means heart. So think heart. For hearts that have drunk the rain that often falls on it, and rain means blessings of God in parables. So hearts that have received the consistent pouring of the blessings of God upon them, and they produce a crop, what? Good works, fruit, however you want to say that, evidence of their faith, that is useful to those for whose sake it was cultivated, meaning that are useful fruit to God who cultivated it, they will receive a blessing from God, a well-done, good and faithful servant. But if that same land, after receiving all that blessing from God, bears thorns and thistles, despite the tender care, the problem is with the land, It is worthless, disqualified, and near to being cursed. A curse hangs over it, and its end is to be burned. Well, that cleared it up. It ends with a complete open-ended question. What's the question? What happened to the land? You go, well, it got burned. Why? Did it get burned like our control burns around here? 
Like, you know how like a forest will get super ingrown and nasty and then a fire will wipe it out and suddenly it can regrow healthy trees? Is that what it means? Like it got cleaned out and so now it can regrow? Is this a hopeful statement? Or does it mean burn like hell burned? Like the land is just consumed and is no longer good for anything. It's wide open. All right. Y'all understand why this is difficult and why I should never have taught this in the first place. <laughs> All right, let me explain a couple things as we get into this, because I'm about to give you five interpretations. Welcome to Option City. All right, I'm going to give you five interpretations. If you were with us through the Revelation series, you're used to this by now. Stop whining. All right. Things I need to say first, there's a couple different ways to come up with your concept of reality, which we will call theology, the study of God, how you understand God. And the two most common terms that are used are systematic theology and biblical theology. And both camps have their arguments. Systematic theology is this idea. Do you realize that like an ecosystem, everything you believe has impacts and implications for everything else you believe? So a systematic theology means you've got to have them all fit together and work in a coherent way so what you would do is you would say i believe the bible teaches this 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 and this that means this other passage means this because it works together biblical theology is slightly different in the sense that you engage with the word as it stands and then say what is god teaching what is the author's intent what does it mean and then figure out what that is all right. Well, which one's right? Well, obviously there's great benefits to both of these. Yeah. What do we then need? I will suggest to you and submit to you that we need a cohesive biblical theology. We need to understand that we allow the Bible to speak for itself, but we need to understand the implications of that. The difference between systematic and cohesive Bible is that systematic does not allow for mystery. Cohesive Bible says God is bigger than us and there's some things we don't understand and there's going to be some serious tensions that are left in Scripture and we just need to deal with that. But I do need to give you one quick warning. Do you realize, especially in this day and age, that you, and I know by personal experience with you, that many of us are holding polar opposite views at the same time? Here's why. For example, I will have somebody get into a debate with me about Calvinism, right? And they'll say things like, man, I'm so stoked and fired up that it had nothing to do with me. Man, it was all straight up God. The idea that I was predestined before the foundations of the world makes me sleep well at night, knowing that my God loves me and takes care of me, takes care of me and will cherish me and I will persevere. And this is beautiful. And they'll go on and on and on about that. Then about three months later, I'll get into a conversation with them about ministering with a coworker and I'll say, Hey, how's that going? And they'll go, you know what? I'm freaked out. I'm like, well, why are you freaked out? Man, I've been ministering and ministering, and it doesn't seem like this guy's getting anywhere. I just found out he has cancer. And you know what they just said? His time is limited here on earth. And I just, no matter what I do, every angle, I'm trying to talk to him about it. It's like he's resistant. But you know what? I'm just, I'm scared because the guy's got limited time. I mean, I don't know if I'm really going to have it. Am I going to get a chance? Am I not going to be? 
Okay, those are polar opposite viewpoints. Why? Because if it's as hardcore as you said before, to a point of predetermination, either he's in or he's not. Why are you sweating it? Nothing you're going to do anyway. The bottom line is you can't figure that one out. And you're sitting there carrying that weight on your shoulders as if you were going to do something about it. If God didn't need you for you, he certainly doesn't need you for somebody else. Regardless of whether they are right or wrong statements, the point is we have to be very careful of holding polar opposite truths in our heads. We need to understand that they work together. And if they're clashing, we need to kind of figure out what that means. All right, here we go. What may this passage mean? I'm going to give you these five options. We're going to blow through them. You're going to need to listen to the podcast. Don't even try to take notes. It's going to be scary. All right, here we go. Number one, does this passage, and you're always thinking of what is the author's intent. You're not saying what does it ultimately mean as much as you're saying what is the author trying to say. All right? So, number one, is this a warning that Christians can lose their salvation? Is that what the author's trying to get through? He's warning Christians, you can lose your salvation. It's the clearest, most obvious reading. It's what it appears to say. Hebrews argued, you can be apostate, you can walk away, clearly that it's possible, and he's saying they are falling away, not falling into sin. Let's be very clear on what that means. Judas, Peter. Judas fell away from Christ and was never saved. Peter denied Christ too, but fell into sin, was restored, and actually became the head of the church moving forward. What's the difference between the two? One fell into sin, one fell away from Christ. Those are two different things. This is only referring to the Judas type of scenario. The Israel argument is this. They were God's chosen people. They tasted of all God had, but they fell away and they never received his blessings or him. Not that generation. The other thing is the author's not clear about all the elements of return if somebody gives up their faith or this or that. But if they go the full hardcore route, then there is no way they can be brought back. And deliberate sin is different. If you go on later on in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, it says, For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Is that what it means? Does it mean that Christians can lose their salvation? Is that his point? And he's scared that's going to happen for his crew. So he's laying down a severe warning. Number two. Is this all an entirely hypothetical scenario merely to suggest that Christians cannot lose their salvation? The author is telling them like the next verse says, but I'm sure it's not the case in your scenario. Is it all hypothetical? When he shifts from we and us to those, did he now go into a hypothetical? He's not talking about specific people. He's saying the whole fact of how this thing would have to work, it shows it's absolutely impossible for someone to go into that scenario. Israel's example was about spiritual progress. It had nothing to do with salvation. The Bible says in Hebrews here, let us be carried forward. God's the one that is moving us forward, not us. It's not apostasy. If he wanted to say apostasy, he would have used the word apostasy. He used the word fall to the side. And you know what? 
I can't imagine, this argument says, of God ever barring the door from somebody returning. The sheer way it's written was that the bad guys were in the midst of crucifying the Son of God, holding him up to open shame. So no, of course you can't get them back to repentance while they're doing that. You've got to wait for that process to finish, then they can be brought back to repentance. If he wanted to scare him, he'd use more severe language. Look at Abraham's example, right? Abraham sinned all over the place. He got in. And you know what? It's guaranteed by God's promise. God promised it. God always keeps his promises. This argument is based on the idea of if you have to do something about it, now we're back in a works mentality, and that's not going to fly. And look, the field got saved. It was cleared, and now it can grow again. Number three. Is this a possibility that it's merely a warning to true Christians to not fall away knowing full well they could never fall away? You go, well, what would be the point of that? It's the manner by which he keeps them on the right path. God is so good at managing his people that he will drop a bomb right in front of you, scare the living daylights out of you, so you go right back onto the right path. Is that the point? Number four. Is this about losing rewards of maturity? Is this all about spiritually progressing or else we're going to lose out? And it has nothing to do with salvation? If this is a Jewish setting... And these guys are talking about returning back to Orthodox Judaism. Wouldn't it make more sense that he's saying, you guys, you can't return to what is dead. In that whole point, you'd be pushing away your savior. So no, we're not doing that. We're talking about progress, guys, progress. Let's move forward. This isn't about salvation. Remember, it's not apostasy. It's just falling over. And man can't restore somebody like that, but God can. God can do anything. And you know what? The land was saved. Number five. Now, this is one that one of the most popular teachers nowadays teaches very clearly, and so you've probably heard this one. Very, very different view. Number five, this is a real warning of going to hell, but he's not talking to Christians. All the people that were referred to, the ones who have been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, all that stuff, those are only people like the seeds that fell on this path and then got choked out, and then this one sprung up but burned out. They were never legit Christians in the first place. The very reason that they fell away demonstrates they are not Christians at all. Eternal security is taught in Scripture, so it can't be denied here. And you know what? The author keeps changing groups that he's talking to. Sometimes he's talking to this group who are Christians. Sometimes he's talking to this group, which are not Christians. And the perseverance of the saints is something that comes from God and not their own best efforts. All right, there you go. Those are five. So which one is it? I will suggest to you for lack of time, this is what I believe the author's intent is. It is theoretically possible to lose your salvation but it's not going to happen to you. You're like, wait, 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 what did you just say? You didn't help me at all. I know. That's why it's weird. I believe that's exactly his point. I think that he went right into that whole thing because he's doing part warning, part encouragement, and he's working with a varied group. All right. Now, what that does, however, is bring up the greater issue that we need to tackle right now. Regardless of what the author intended in that passage, can we or can we not lose our salvation? The difficulty of this 
is as I told you, it splits whole denominations think differently on this. Uh, You can walk into a different church and you're going to hear an entirely different view than you would in another church. All right. The other thing is I'm personally conflicted about the issue. I finished up some of my prep and my wife came up to me and she goes, I read this. How are you going to handle that? And I thank the Lord for my partner. And then I'm just kidding. I'm just messing with her because she's not here. Okay. Uh, she said, uh, so what, what does your gut tell you? She goes, I know you don't just go with your gut, but what's your gut tell you? I said, you know, here's what's weird about it. I was raised in a denomination that says you can lose your salvation. All my adult life has been in denominations that say you can't. My gut says you can. My scholarship says you can't. Even in my own life, there's conflict that goes on in here. You guys, I have not done this severe of prep and study and research on any other subject probably in my entire life. And I ended up at Fiddler on the Roof. <laughs> Anybody see Fiddler on the Roof? Give me, yeah, there we go. The lead character's name is Tevia, all right? Now, Tevia comes up with a bunch of guys, and they're all arguing Jews. And one of the guys say, hey, Tevia, come here. You've got to solve our argument. He said, all right, what's your point? And the guy says, here's my point, and he argues his. And Tevia goes, you are right. And then the other guy goes, well, here's my point. And he goes, you are also right. And then the third guy comes up and goes, they can't both be right. And he goes, you are right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Here are the two best arguments in the whole matter. Here are the best arguments for eternal security. All I want you to do is I want you to sit back and take this in from a fire hose. Here we go. Number one, God is faithful. God doesn't change and our faith depends on him. Jesus will get you home. The Bible clearly states, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Eternal life, by definition, means eternal life. Weird. I think it means eternal. So if it starts, it's going to keep going. God defends his own. No one can snatch them out of his hand. Christ is consistently, the Bible says, interceding for us, the believer, in matters of sin. The Holy Spirit is consistently interceding for us in matters of weakness. We are predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. Regardless of where you stand on the issue of predestination, the Bible is clear that we are predestined that in that process we will become like the son of God. God is the judge, and he's on our side. If the guy who condemns is on your team, then what are you worried about? The Bible says that neither death, life, angels, rulers, things to come, power, height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of Christ. A new creation is, by definition, new. Therefore, the old may well have fallen away, but the new is a whole different sort, and no, it cannot. The Holy Spirit has been placed within us as a guarantee of our inheritance to come. Our inheritance is heavenly. It is not kept here where it could spoil, rust, fade, or be stolen. It is up in heaven where it is safe. Abraham got in. Peter got in. A bunch of losers got in. So you can get in. Yes, if it was up to us, we would certainly fall away. But no, because of the grace of God, we absolutely cannot Born again means you are born again. 
what do you die again and then get born again and then die again? Uh, you are spiritually preserved constantly. God does not just regenerate you, but he is the vital force by which he is keeping you alive at every moment. When you have a union with Christ and you join with him, it creates a new corporation that all of his pass over into yours and that can never be destroyed. And there are many, many passages in scripture that say you can be assured that you are saved and you can be assured that you're going home. He's right. Right? So man, it's a lock. Yeah. Here's the other side. God designed a scenario by which he created beings. He created angelic beings like that. He created human beings. And in creating human beings, he set up a system by which they, like him, would have choice. The very definition of the creation of mankind is that we would engage with God in a loving fashion. You cannot have love if you are a robot. Therefore, there has to be a matter of free will involved in it, which says, I can choose you, Lord, or something else. That was demonstrated in the garden. There was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden, so they would always have to choose God over something else. The very definition of idolatry in the Bible that seems to be a problem is that God wants us to be faithful and not unfaithful. That means you have the ability to wander to something else, even to yourself, beyond God. The very call to love God, the greatest commandment, with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, is based on the concept of adherence. Number two, there are more than enough statements that say, in the Old Testament, God said, return to me and I will return to you. In the New Testament, Jesus said, if you deny me, I will deny you before my Father. The very presence of enemies, the devil, demons, false teachers, wolves, getting into the church is the very idea that we can be led astray. It's the point of temptation. There has to be a point to temptation. There is a point to temptation, and it's that it's possible to lead someone astray. Over and over, the Bible says, he who endures to the end will be saved and it talks about don't be disqualified from the race. Clearly, God's desires can be rejected. The Holy Spirit can be resisted because Satan did it, and we've been doing it ever since. There's a huge if. The phrases go, you have salvation if you hold fast to the word, if you continue in the faith, if you abide in him. Deliberate sinning leads to severe consequences. God is God. You don't just get to do whatever you want. You don't just get to play games with that. There are massive consequences to violation of God's nature. The parables go on and on and on about different types of land that were growing up and they were doing good and they got choked out. So obviously it's possible. God's salvation is by grace through faith. Not just grace, not just a drop in there and everything's cool. It is only valuable insofar it is engaged with and partnered with faith. The faith component is clinging to Christ. To let go of your Savior leaves you without one. The Bible says that it's possible, obviously, in Hebrews and other passages, Israel's example is that Israel was fully engaged with God, yet only those who combined it with faith were saved, the rest were lost. And apostasy, by definition, is a final act, not temporary. It is a constant hardening. It is a refusal to repent, and you will be left with no other option. He is also right. Are you tracking with why this is so difficult and why it's so crazy? 
there's a couple hinge points we have to hit on the way out of this. And that is, do you understand when I referred earlier to the predestination versus free will argument that drops a bomb on all of this? If you truly believe in predestination to the point of predetermination, then why are we having this conversation? It had nothing to do with you in the first place. It has nothing to do with you now. You're not even any part of the equation. If, however, you believe that there's an engagement that when God says all can come to him, but not all do, then there's a matter of faith. There's a matter of a free will engagement. If that is the process, then we certainly have a whole nother ball game going. Because are we saved or are we in the process of being saved? All these different hinge points keep hitting in. I believe that there are intentional obscure passages and truths and unintentional obscure passages or truths. For example, there are times when God makes something fuzzy for a reason. For example, the return of Christ. Is it pre, mid, or post? You have no idea. You think you know. You don't know. Why? Because Jesus said, I'm not telling you. And you know what? I'm going to mess with your head because I'm going to drop a bunch of these things in here because it'll keep you on your toes. He's doing it on purpose. However, there are unintentional things like the Trinity, meaning God's not trying to be fuzzy about it. He's saying, listen, you don't have anything like that in your existence. So you know what? I can't get that to you. I'm trying really hard to convey to you in baby talk and it's just not working. I will submit to you this. The issue of losing your salvation versus eternal security is intentionally obscure because God is talking to various groups at various times and getting across different points to their heart. The Holy Spirit uses it both in conviction and encouragement. When we look at it from a human side, we see one thing. When we look at it from God's side, we see another thing. But what we must do, I believe is that we need to understand that tensions exist in Scripture. We have to see that truths are being told in Scripture and we're not quite sure how it all works out. It seems to be extraordinarily clear of this and extraordinarily clear of this. How do those two match? Our human minds are not quite good enough to get through that one. And I will suggest that that's on purpose. Because God is indeed God and there is mystery in God. We love the idea that we can get our hands around God and we get everything nailed down and we're so Western thinking and I can put it all in my little systems and I know the truth. If you can get your arms around God, God's not very big. I believe that he knows what he's doing and he's conveying to us certain truth. God is faithful, I will tell you that. God can do whatever God wants to do. But we are called to be faithful as well. That is a mandate in Scripture. And in this year of faithfulness, it's where I'd like to camp. If you are here and you are saying, it doesn't matter anything of what I do in my faith, and I will stomp all over grace, and I will run and be a hellion and do whatever I want to do because God's just going to have to deal with it. I would suggest to you, you are being warned. If you are one of the scared little ones that is saying, oh my gosh, I'm so screwed up, I'm never going to make it. Jesus is going to go, I know you wouldn't, but I'm pretty good at this stuff. Come here, I'll get you home. Amen? Let's finish up the passage. Verse 9. 
Though we speak, remember I told you we'd go really fast. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Listen, I know I was being scary to you, he said. I know that I was throwing out something that would rock your world, but I want to encourage you. I am sure it's going to go different in your case. Things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love for which you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, eagerness, and haste to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself the highest of all, saying, surely I will bless you. I will multiply you. He said that after the Isaac sacrifice scenario. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited 25 years and receiving the promised child Isaac, Obtain the promise for people swear by something greater than themselves and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation because it shows serious intent. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, both national Israel, true Israel, the church, the unchangeable character of his promise, his faithfulness, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things, God's word and his promise in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope, a person that enters into the inner place, the holy of holies behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner. That word was also used for a big ship coming into a harbor and the little ship that would go out and drop the anchor to make sure it was secure. On our behalf, having become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. What are we supposed to do with this? I think that we have made it clear how great God is. I think we have made it clear that God whispers things to us. But I want us to understand as well that God desires your heart all of it today that he indeed is the source of everything good you cannot find satisfaction outside of him you cannot find goodness apart from him you cannot live without him and so I believe that the clearest call that we can give today is engage afresh with your Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for letting us walk through perhaps the most difficult passage in the Bible. We ask, Lord, that you would give us clarity as to what you are speaking to our heart. Lord, that you would allow us to do research and diligence and excitement to look through your word, sort things out and figure it out for ourselves, and, and Lord, that you would lead us to truth. Lord, man's opinion only goes so far. Everyone's got an opinion. Father, even the two different sides have an opinion. But I pray that we would only receive that which is from you, and you'd make the rest of it fall away. Thank you, Lord, for holding us so tightly, 
so closely. Thank you for doing what we cannot do for ourselves. Thank you, Lord, for being bigger than our sin. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.